Can't walk a dog in the dark. Well, it's <laughs> you, been done. You, can't. <laughs> you can't walk your cats in the dark, though. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. <laughs> that is correct. Do you know that song? No. But you can be happy <laughs> if you mind to. All you got to do is put your mind to it. Knuckle down. Buckle, buckle down. down. Do it, do, do it, it, do it. <laughs> what is happening? I'm really glad you know that song. <laughs> you I, don't, know? I don't know what that is. It's a song. Yeah. It was my favorite song as a small child. My dad had it on a cassette tape in his car. I'd always request it. Can't go fishing? Yeah. In a swimming pool? No, right? in a watermelon oh, patch. Oh, in a watermelon patch, that's it. What was the swimming pool one? Wait, was there a swimming pool one? I thought so, but maybe not. One I never quite understood, but is probably accurate, is you can't change film with a kid on your back. Yep. So when I worked at the Northland camp... We would do funny time where we did a bunch of skits for the kiddos. And the last the last thing for the funny time every year was we would do a different song. It was kind of dumb. And we kind of act things out. And we one year we did You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. So, you know, one girl was like skating around. And then we'd have people acting out everything else. So like walking around with a, uh, a fishing pole or like, a kid on someone's back while they're trying to play with the camera. Um, I forget what all the other ones are, but wholesome. <clears throat> yep. And then my job was on the, the chorus. We had three sections. So I'd get them to like shout it out with me, knuckle down, buckle down, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> I love it. So I've been a live performer for that song in front of hundreds of kids. Wow. Did you do what other Roger Miller songs did you guys do? Oh, that's probably the only one. Oh, okay. He's got a lot of good songs. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. This is week 17, where we cover days 113 to 119. With me today is Aaron Downs and Matthew Vitamin. That's right. That is the accurate way of pronouncing the, your last name, right? Yes. I got verification from a lovely German man, and he pronounced it, and that is legitimately how it is pronounced in its native tongue. Well, we're going to go with that then. Yes. Thank you. How are you guys doing today? You know, it'll be great once we get this leather and embers ember in. We're about to get crackling. We begin our Old Testament passage in Joshua 9, and uh, this week's reading goes through chapter 21. So we open up in chapter 9, uh, which is actually one of the main, or well, I guess it's the first thing I want to talk about because it's the first chapter that we're reading, but there was something uh, in chapter 9 that kind of was interesting to me that I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on. Um The chapter is titled, at least in my version of the Bible, The Gibeonite Deception. So in this passage, we have um, the Israelites. They have been kind of going through the land, conquering, taking out other whatever, cities, nations, whatever they were, different people groups. 
um, and they were possessing lands. And um, Gibeon, it says the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to, I don't know how you say that, A-I. And then so they, they basically got a plan because they were very, uh, they, they knew it was coming for them. They knew that they were about to be, you know, put to the sword. And who wants to be put to the sword? Nobody. Well, I'll speak for everybody. Nobody wants to be put to the sword. So they kind of pretend, and, and this is where you guys chime in if I'm kind of taking this the wrong way. They just kind of like make up a story. Oh, we're from far away. We're poor. All our stuff wore out on the way. Make a covenant with us. Like let us, whatever, be able to commune with you. Like don't kill us. We aren't from close by that where you want to conquer. Um, so they basically trick them into being favorable towards them. And my question about that is, it seems like they halfway understood who God was because they heard what Joshua and the Israelites were doing. They're just wiping folks out because the God of Israel is on their side and he's like the most powerful God. And they thought to themselves, we don't stand a chance. Like we're for sure going to get taken out if we don't do, you know, something crazy. So is that, it almost seemed to me like that's, they almost got like half mercy from God for halfway getting him right. Or like they had fear and respect for God, but it didn't go so far as to like make him their God and to repent and turn to him. So like their lives were spared, but then they became the servants kind of like the Aaron boys of the Israelites, which is not, you know, a very high position, but it's better than being dead. I don't know. Does that make any sense? That's kind of what I got out of that passage. What are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, I think so. I think they were more afraid of God than they feared Yahweh. I mean, obviously the Israelites had in mind that they could have been being deceived because they asked them, you know, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? So they're, they're saying, how do we know we'd, you're not from around here? And then they replied, we are your servants. So their deception kind of matches the punishment for it, where they become servants, right? So that they were like, hey, you know, we're your servants. We submit to you. And that's actually what happened in the end. I also think it's interesting that when Joshua talks to them and asks them why they did this thing, he immediately tells them that you are cursed and will always be slaves. And it it sounds a lot like when God speaks to Adam and Eve and then the serpent. He asks Adam if he had done this, and then Eve, why did you do this? And then tells the serpent, you're cursed more than any other creature from the ground. So it sounds just very similar to me. I don't know that there's anything to make of that. But Why would they, the Israelites have felt a need to make a covenant with anybody? If they thought maybe if the people were not in the land, you know, they would have trade treaties and stuff with this, these other people, or like why would they even like consider that at this point? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think they probably, on the one hand, are still fearful people. So 
they're not looking to make any more enemies than they need to, especially people who are outside the land who would be a potential threat in the future. So, I mean, I think you've got Abraham who makes treaties with people as well who are in the land. So probably just a normal practice. But that's a good question. The day the sun stood still was is a common Sunday school lesson, like a lot of these stories in the Old Testament. Um, but what I find interesting is the execution of the five kings. They hid him in a cave. Yeah. Or they locked him in a cave. They locked him in a cave. And when they brought him out, they made the kings lie down. Then the Israelite chieftain leaders put their feet on the necks of these kings and either killed them that way by smashing their necks or they were hung on a tree. They were hung for a day. Uh, it seems kind of a, a gruesome, barbaric detail to include here, but I was kind of getting those vibes from the seed of the, the woman crushing the, the serpent, the enemy. Just getting those vibes from this little picture here. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I like it. Uh, when it speaks about the sun standing still, and it says, is this not written in the book of Jashar or whatever like that? Is that just some type of ancient, you know, history recording that has since been lost or destroyed or something? I mean, throughout places like Chronicles and Samuel and Kings, I think they often reference other writings where events are recorded. And based on the footnote in the CSB, I'm guessing that Jashar means the upright. I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's the footnote. So the book of the upright, maybe. Um, So apparently it was just a writing that they had. I wish I had a lot of those old writings. That'd be so fascinating. The stuff that's referenced in like Chronicles. Yeah, I remember a lot of those like Oh, and the rest of the details are in this book. And you're like, dang yep. it, that book's gone now. I want to know. Like, it's very, yeah. makes you curious. It does. When and who knows? Maybe the, maybe an archaeologist will dig up these books someday. Oh, man, I hope they that do. That would be pretty sweet. Hmm. Yeah. Are they looking? I have no idea. Get out there and look. I'll donate. I'll give five bucks. <laughs> think it might take a little bit more than that well i'm not the only one donating everybody get five bucks yeah if everyone on the planet gave five bucks yeah that'd be a lot of money dude we'd have all the ancient books we could ever want we did we dig them all up yeah probably part of the problem is some places where archaeologists need to get to to discover some biblical artifacts are in countries where it'd be really really dangerous or illegal for them to be there Hmm. I wonder if that's on purpose. Divinely. I mean, I guess it probably would be if that's what's happening. Maybe you should come up with a deceptive plan to deceive these nations who are hiding these writings. I'm from far away. My sandals have worn out. My wineskins have burst and are old. My bread is no good. But my shovel's fine. Let me start digging. I'm going (laughs) to find those manuscripts. Uh, one of my greatest strengths is very strong rabbit trailer. <laughs> I do a great job of that, um, did both, they, both here and at work. Did they tell you that in your performance review? No, I just know that. Okay. 
Because uh, a lot of times if I'm in charge of like, hey, like get to know people, build the team, mingle, uh, you know, I do a lot of the prompting. And then if somebody says something, I rabbit trail it off into a good conversation, yep. you know? Nice. So. Well, I'm always happy when I see you put that skill to work Thanks. in the lobby on Sunday morning. So Yeah, sometimes I'll try to do that more. You just need to harness that for the church. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we were sitting next to each other, and there's this new person, and Matthew looks over at me. He's like, that's a new person. Do you want to go over there with me and talk to them? And I was like, oh. Nice. That's such a great suggestion. Oh, um, yeah. Didn't we do that? Well, I said yes, and then you walked over there, and I didn't go. Oh. <laughs> because someone else came up and talked to me. But Well, that, you could have said, hey, I'd like to talk to you in a moment, but I have to go greet somebody. Yeah. I mean, I was going to. When Matthew was walking over, there are two other people walking over there, and I was like, okay, four people rushed this new person. I was like, I'm going to hold back. Yeah. You, you got to test them. Throw everything you got at them, and if they stay, <laughs> yeah, you know that they're good. If they, like the sun, stand still. <laughs> <clears throat> and with that segue, we're back into Joshua 10. That we are. Since the name Joshua is just the Hebrew version of the Aramaic name Jesus, do you think we would be reading this book differently if this book was called Jesus instead of Joshua? I know I would be. I did not know that fact. What do you think? I would be thinking about Jesus a lot more and not Joshua. That I'd be like, is it supposed to be imagery? Is that Jesus carrying out this stuff? Or is it like a foretelling of later on at the end of the judgment time. It's like, you know, so far Jesus has been very, well, not in our reading yet, but just in the Bible, you know, healing people, very merciful. When he came time one, he wasn't, he didn't come to judge. He came to save this imagery of him coming back later to judge the the unrepentant sins. You know, initially when Moses gave Joshua his name, I think he said that it means Yahweh saves. Numbers 13. And that's right. That's why Jesus came. I think we would see a lot of these parallels, a lot of these shadows, like you said. I think before I mentioned in a different week that, you know, Joshua brings his people into the promised land and that's again why what jesus came to do fulfills the promises that that god made in the covenants and i think the verses at the end of our joshua reading could be language that we find at the end of the new testament where it says so the lord gave israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and they took possession of it and settled there The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their ancestors. None of their enemies were able to stand against them, for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. None of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. Everything was fulfilled, and the people were at rest. Yeah, and And, and that's what Jesus is bringing about as well. Do you think there's anything to the fact looking at this story as a whole or kind of the whole deal of um, Israelites, you know, freed from Egypt, 
wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they get to the promised land, what God has promised them and wants to give them, you know, a great blessing. Like, is that is that something we should take away for our lives as far as, like, God's blessing and his promises? It's like, how did, how did those uh, come about, or how did they go about obtaining what God had promised them? Well, they had to keep moving forward, taking action in faith and not sinning, you know, not straying from what God, um, you know, directed them to do. And it's like, as they continued to, you know, follow and have faith, but like, they're still fighting people. They're still battling people. It's not like it was just super comfy, just like handed to them, you know, in a little fancy basket with a ribbon you know what i mean like they had to really take a lot of action themselves to well, follow what god said yeah i think what i think your point is right though and that's what the new testament authors say when they write these things happen to them but they were written down for our instruction and we are instructed that yes god is in control don't be afraid he's with you but we're also called to live faithfully and to take up responsibility instead of assuming that we'll drift to where God wants us when in reality he's calling us to uh, rise and obey, right? I, I liked that because having not read through, you know, well, just chapter by chapter like this through the Old Testament, it's like I always knew the super high level of Egypt to wilderness to promised land. But, you know, the details as far as everything that they had to do to kind of get all the different areas of that promised land. I'm like, man, like that's a lot of it's a lot of people that they had to take out and a lot of battles and a lot of moving around and, you know, just kind of constantly having faith. Okay, yeah, God's still with us. Different country or different city, different army, different situation, but we still have faith that God's going to deliver it to us as long as we're obedient and as long as we, you know, take take the right action. I think somewhere it said just Joshua alone took out 31 kings. So, like, that's a lot. What's that, chapter 12, uh, at least up to that point? Yeah, there's that whole listing of the kings who yeah. were defeated by Joshua and the Israelites. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it, it's really worth reflecting on that at the end of 21, everything that God promised was fulfilled. I think sometimes we forget that God fulfilled all of the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Israel. We we sometimes act like uh, God didn't actually bring things to completion here. He didn't fulfill the promises when the text is really clear that he did. And Theoretically, as we read the rest of the narrative, we should expect that the people will respond in equal measure by fulfilling their covenant obligations to the Lord. And we'll see if that happens as we go through Joshua and Judges. I mean, we will see a little bit of that at the end of Joshua, too. You know, just God's promised blessings and cursings, and he's faithful in both of those things. He's faithful Mm -hmm. here to bless the people and what he's promised, and then when they don't, <clears throat> spoiler alert, when they don't fulfill their... How could you give a spoiler alert this early on in our <laughs> reading? When they don't fulfill their 
their end, you know, and they don't follow God's commands, he is faithful in the curses that he's promised to enact as well. So we're going to get into that next week in, in Judges. Moving on to our passage in Luke this week, uh, we pick up in Luke 14, 25. Um, the cost of discipleship. Aaron, what does the cost of discipleship mean to you? Well, I would just refer everybody to a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's kind of the layman translation. There's another translation with the true title, which is just discipleship. And that's a more accurate translation. Uh, but unfortunately, there's an inaccurate translation that is just really moving and gripping. So you really need to le- read the lay level one because it's uh, the Bonhoeffer quote that says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I did not know that there were two different. I mean, I knew that there was, it was written in German, right? So yeah. it was definitely a translation what we're reading, but I didn't know that yep. there were maybe a, a significant Yeah, difference. so there's a more academic series of all of Bonhoeffer's works. And I remember reading through discipleship and there's a footnote. I kept looking for that line because I wanted to use it in a sermon. I wanted to be able to cite it. And I saw in a footnote by the editor of the or translator or whatever saying that there's a really popular translation that's not accurate, which is the what I was looking for. AJ. Have you renounced all of your possessions? No, but I was considering about building a tower, and I counted the cost, and I realized that I could not build a tower. I didn't have enough money. It's very wise of you. You're a living parable. Matthew, you were really interested in our Luke reading this week. What stuck out to you? Yeah, I thought that uh, you know there's a good amount of parables, passages, all that. Uh, Some of them, I guess I hadn't really read before. I was unfamiliar with them, so I found them interesting. I didn't quite know what to make of chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest manager. Dude, I am with you. This is a real conundrum. Okay. And I think I have an answer, but talk to me about how it hit you. AJ, I'd like to know what you were thinking about it as well. And you, AJ, have the CSB study Bible notes in front of you, so maybe they'll have something helpful along the way. But Matthew, why don't you walk us through that parable and then kind of point out the things that were either confusing or uh, just didn't make sense to you. Okay, so uh, stop me if I'm summarizing this wrong. There's a guy who works... For another guy, we'll call him his master. Well, the guy managing his master's things, he was kind of bad at it, wasting things, and he was going to get fired, basically. Um, which, you know, it's bad. He's like, all right, I got to figure something out. And then it seems like he goes to a couple people um, that owed his master, I mean, not money, what was it, like oil and wheat, I think, but, you know, owed owed goods. And he basically took uh, less than what they actually owed, I think like 50% and then 80% of what they owed was just like, oh, okay, you owe 100 portions of this, just give 50 or just give 80. And then they did it. Uh, But then it seems like his master was kind of like, all right with it. 
it says what he commended uh, his shrewdness. So I'm like, uh, I read the footnotes in my study Bible, and it just kind of gave several different options of what it might have been. It's like, well, maybe it was like he actually got some goods from them when they owed him a lot. It like something's better than nothing. So maybe he was happy about that. Um, and then it, it was like a possibility of, well, the guy that's going to get fired, it's like he's making friends with people that have a good amount of things that they own. So that could help him in the future to be on other people's good side kind of when he gets thrown out and maybe has tough times trying to find another job. But I don't know. I don't know if any of that's accurate. Uh, I don't know. What what do you, what do you guys think? I think I've always heard this story from the perspective that the master was just happy that this guy made some better deals and was happy that he tried to keep his job and praised him because of the fact that he went out and took initiative and, you know, tried to do better. I think that's the only explanation that I ever remember hearing about this passage. I think it's definitely a, a lot more than that. It seems like these study notes give many different situations where it's possible that this this guy who's been mismanaging his master's money possibly made these deals with inflated interest rates and is now reducing those or taking out his share of what he was going to take from this deal that he made to make it more fair. And his master praises him for that. It could be something like that. And then... It's also possible that the story really ends at verse 8 where it just we hear that the master praises this servant for being shrewd and whatever that means but Jesus is saying that you know people will deal shrewdly to make friends and use money in a way to to do that but children of the light will use their money to bring people into the kingdom, not just for their own ends. So there were some interesting study notes, um, just thinking about it a little bit more deeply. But I don't know, Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is tough. It's hard to know what to make of it. And the way that I'm reading it, I, I'm i seeing rich guy is upset that his servant is mismanaging his funds Obviously, he's made a lot of loans, and people owe money. And the the rich guy finds out, all my money's gone. I don't have anything. And there are people who can't pay it back. I need to fire this guy and get someone else. So he tells him, I'm going to fire you and get someone else. And this guy, in desperation, realizing the, the desperateness of the situation, tracks everyone down and offers them a repayment plan where they repay part of what they owe. And he has two motivations. One, he's trying to recover some of the loss and maybe keep his job with his master. But then also, he's clearing people's debts for them for less than what they owe. So that way, if he doesn't get taken back, uh, then people will take him in. I think that's what verse four is saying. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So it seems like he's trying to operate in a shrewd way that 
will maybe bring him in favor with his master. And if not, it will bring him in favor with all of his master's debtors. Hmm. I don't know if that's right or not. I mean, I'm I'm definitely going to think about this passage a lot more because I think it's really interesting and thought-provoking. I mean, the way you just described that is almost like instead of holding out for everything or nothing, he's willing to kind of make some compromises and go, you know, instead of saying holding out and saying, I want 100% and then getting nothing and getting fired, you know, he's willing to take the 50% or the 80% and then give himself a chance to be favored by two parties instead of no parties. Yeah, and I think the way that Jesus then goes on to apply this is essentially telling his followers, you need to realize the desperateness of your situations, and you need to look long. Look not just what your situation is now, but what it will be in the future, and invest yourself and your money and your life in a way that you'll be faithful to me. So that way you'll be praised by your true master, God, on the final day. And then, of course, he contrasts what he's demanding of his people, which is act shrewdly in this life because you know this life is passing and there's a final day where worldly wealth is not going to serve you at all. He contrasts that way of living with the Pharisees in verse 14 who are described as lovers of money. And I'm sure there's a lot written on it as well. Well, someday, maybe I'll be able to preach through Luke, and I'll get to spend a whole week examining this and trying to figure it out. Look forward to it. You you look forward to it? Is that what you said? <laughs> um, the only other thing, I guess, that stuck out to me that I hadn't read before was 17, 7 through 10, just about the... Unworthy servants, it's kind of like, why would you expect to, you know, get tons of praise and favor just for doing what you've been commanded to do and just doing what you're supposed to do? I don't know. I was just thinking about that a lot of like, can be, sometimes we're tempted to think like, hey, I haven't been sinning that much lately. God's probably so happy with me and I'm such a great person and he should bless me. And it's like, well, we're just... You actually are just doing what you're supposed to be doing, and like you should be thankful that God <laughs> accepts, uh, you know, anything that we do. At least that's the way I took the passage. It reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1, where he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true worship. That's the CSB translation, but there's a footnote where it says, this is your reasonable service. Which that's extreme for it to be considered a reasonable service, but it makes sense. Yeah. Because then it kind of matches what this little passage says. Yeah, Jesus and Paul are teaching the same things here, just in different ways. The only other thing I wanted to point out from our Luke reading is the rich man and Lazarus text in chapter 16. Chapter 16 apparently is such a fascinating chapter. What I want to point out is that Jesus is giving this parable. I mean, I think it's a parable. And uh, there's a little bit of debate about that because it would be the only parable where there's a figure who's named in it, but it seems pretty much to be a parable. And in it, uh, there's this rich guy 
who is in Hades, who wants Moses to, or Abraham to send somebody back and warn his family um, and to tell them, you know, about his destiny. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. So they need to obey the Torah, live faithfully to God. And this rich guy says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And, and that's exactly what happens when Jesus rises from the dead, right? Certainly some people are persuaded, but ultimately many of these people Jesus talks to who refuse to take heed of the law and the prophets, uh, the, what we call the Old Testament, they also didn't take heed of the resurrection. And this is especially important because um, in chapter 17, verse 20, when the Pharisees ask him about the kingdom of God, um, he warns them, you're not going to see it. You're not going to understand because the kingdom of God is with you right now. And over and over again, there's this warning that if you don't listen to what's written in the scriptures, if you don't listen to me, you're, you're not going, nothing will ever convince you. No sign, no miracle, not even someone coming back from the dead. And then, of course, in our reading, we read in chapter 18 where Jesus takes the 12 aside and tells them about the fact that um, it's written through the prophets about the Son of Man, that he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked, insulted, spit on, flogged, they'll kill him, and he will rise on the third day. So throughout, Luke is trying to point out the importance of the Old Testament um, in the way that Jesus fulfills it. Yeah, I also like the rich man and Lazarus. Because it, yeah, it's very true. And it's also the whole thing of like, you can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. Yeah. And I think more importantly, um, you can't force someone to see the truth about Jesus. That's maybe something we want to do, but ultimately we have to rely on, on God to open their eyes, just as he did for the disciples, who even when he explicitly told them about the prophets prophesying of him, and they just couldn't see it and understand it. Uh, it wasn't until after his resurrection that he made it known to them. And I think we, you know, as we talk to people who we want to know the gospel, and who, you know, we can probably say, if you're not, if you're not believing now, like someone could raise from the dead, and you still wouldn't believe because that's exactly what has happened. Well, instead of becoming discouraged by that, I think we need to pray that God would open their eyes, just as He did for other people like the disciples who also didn't believe. Speaking of raising from the dead, it's so appropriate that we read these chapters this week as we approach Resurrection Sunday. And um, I know that by the time this is dropped, that will already have happened, but it's good for us to think about the resurrection all year round and about the fact that someone did raise from the dead and we have heard from him so we can truly believe. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. Find out more at resurrectionmn.org. A nice discussion um, in Joshua. And now as we move to <laughs> Luke. <laughs> Come on. You can't laugh when I do it. Okay, you laughed first. No, because you started laughing. Like, <laughs> I was uh, like the thing where you're like on the edge. Like if one person looks at me, I'm going to lose it. That was me. Okay. And I saw the look on your face. <laughs> what if one potato looks at you? Uh, yeah, I'd probably lose it. <laughs> you sit still, Mr. Potato Head.
Oh, he leaned. Yeah. He has back problems. Oh. 